Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. What a beautiful song. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 21. I'll also be referencing John chapter 12. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitudes said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. It was Palm Sunday. Because of a sore throat, five-year-old Johnny stayed home from church with an older sibling. When the family returned home, they were carrying several palm branches. The little boy said, what are those palm branches for? And an older brother said, well, people held them over Jesus's head as he walked by. Little Johnny said, wouldn't you know it? The one Sunday I'm sick and can't go, Jesus shows up. Mary Bernston said, my six-year-old son came home from our Palm Sunday service proudly carrying his palm. My husband and I quizzed him on the Sunday school lesson for that day. My husband and I asked him about it. He told us enthusiastically, Jesus came to Jerusalem on a donkey and the happy people waved their palm branches and sang, Ho, Susanna. Our generation is the only one going to get that today. But I'm going to make the younger generation wonder, what's Ho Susanna? Google it. You'll find it. Palm Sunday, we call it that, representing the, the uh, triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And really, it marks the beginning of the last week of Jesus' earthly life before he was crucified. Now, what you may not know is that much of the Gospels are devoted to that last week. In fact, in John, it begins in chapter 12 of his 21 chapters. So nearly 50% of the Gospel of John deals with the last week of Jesus. 
In Matthew, it begins in chapter 21 of his 28 chapters. So 25% of Matthew. In Mark, Palm Sunday arrives in the 11th chapter of his 16 chapters, over 30%. So approximately 30% of the four gospels are devoted to detailing the last week of Jesus. Now I'm sure most of you know the general outline of this account, but you've never considered the story really in any detail. Why did Jesus ride in on the back of a donkey? Why did the people wave palm branches? Why did the people cry out Hosanna as he passed by? What does all of that mean? Most of us focus on the rest of the week, the crucifixion and the resurrection, But of all the events of the last week before the resurrection, the triumphal entry is probably the most overlooked and easily or or least understood, I should say. Fred Craddock said the triumphal triumphal entry was a parade, a protest, and a funeral procession. Now, we've all seen the nature of the event as a parade as the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And perhaps we could understand it in some ways as a protest because the people were hoping that they could be freed from Roman domination, but very seldom do we think of it as a funeral procession, but Jesus knew that this was the beginning of the end. Not the end of him, but the end of his earthly ministry. And since the triumphal entry is repeated by all four Gospels, it tells us that something critical is about to happen. As you read this story, one impression is prevalent. Jesus is in complete control of what's going on. You see, in other places you find him dealing with other issues, but here no one expects him to do what he does. There are no sick people, no Pharisees to confront, no storms to still, no dead men to raise, no puzzling questions to answer. Up until this time, he's asked people to keep things quiet, but now all of that changes. So I want us to look at it for a few moments. First, I want you to notice the arrangement by Jesus. Now, in John chapter 12, which I'll not turn there right to second, it says that Jesus arrived in Bethany, which is a town on the side of the mountain, or on the Mount of Olives, actually. And he arrived on Friday, six days before the Passover. He stayed at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And this home was a special place of refuge for Jesus, as you read about the account. He, they were special friends, but this visit was different. You see, Jesus had come for a funeral, but he turned it into a celebration. When he, a couple of days before this, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, and hundreds of people had seen him do that. And now on Sunday, the first day of the week, Jesus left Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he walked a short distance to another small village on the Mount of Olives called Bethpage. And this village actually faces Jerusalem. And Jesus sent his disciples with these instructions, go into the village and you're going to see a donkey and bring it back to me. Now, when you read Matthew's account, they actually brought back two. They brought back a donkey and a colt, a donkey colt. 
And Jesus is the one who got on the donkey colt and rode into Jerusalem with his disciples walking beside. Now his entrance upon the colt was a direct fulfillment of prophecy 575 years before. Listen to this scripture. Rejoice greatly, O daughter, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9, verse 9. 575 years before this happened, those words tell us two things about the Messiah. First, he is a gentle king riding on a donkey, and second, he is a righteous king bringing salvation. Now, Jesus could not have chosen a more unlikely way to present himself to the nation. Nothing would seem more unlikely than for a king to come riding in on a donkey. You see, if the scripture had not predicted it, no one, have, no one would have ever dreamed this up. That explains why the Romans sat by and let this happen. Because if you think about it, no self-respecting king would be caught dead on a donkey. And yet the Romans probably watched as this crowd gathered around this man who's riding on a donkey and they were probably laughing about it. Who's, who's gonna be threatened by this fella? Here's a pauper king riding on a borrowed donkey. His saddle is a makeshift layer of clothing. He's attended by an unruly mob whose only weapons are palm branches. They're probably laughing. They weren't threatened at all. He didn't look much like a king that day. But the reason was, that's the whole point. He is a king, but not like any earthly King. The triumphal entry was an acted parable. If you think about it, Jesus was sending a clear message. This is what I am. I am your king, but I'm not the king you were expecting right now. So you see the arrangement that Jesus made. Now, I also want to call your attention to the arrival of Jesus. I'm going to read out of John chapter 12, verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, down in verses 12 and 13, it says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The road to the city was extremely crowded that day. The historian Josephus actually said there could have been millions of people, probably hundreds of thousands of pilgrims were flocking into the city. Why? Because there were three feasts that all Jewish men, or all Jewish men, I guess every Jewish male was required to attend in Jerusalem. The Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Booths. So, getting ready for Passover, everybody's coming into Jerusalem. It's very crowded. 
Now, if you listen to this passage in Exodus, it's, I, want, I want to call your attention to something. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. This is Exodus 12, verses 3 through 6. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the, from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now according to Exodus 12, on the 10th day of the month of the year of Nisan, which is the first month of the year, Every man was to select a lamb that would be the right size for his household to eat. If the household was too small, you could partner with a neighbor. And it could come from the sheep or the goats. And the family would then keep the lamb for four days until the 14th day. And then kill it and eat the lamb that evening for the Passover meal. Now the day that the Israelites picked the lamb was called Lamb Selection Day. It was the very festive day. All pilgrims were anxious by making their way into the city to pick the lamb from the flocks that had been raised. And incidentally, we know from history that most of the lambs were raised in Bethlehem. Are you making the connection here? Now, how do we miss the fact that Jesus came into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day? Probably because we don't know a lot about Old Testament Passover celebration, but the writers of the New Testament got it. In fact, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Hebrews 7, 27, he sacrificed for sins once for all, then he offered himself. Hebrews 9, 28, Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many people. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter in 1 Peter 1, 9 says, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. In the book of Revelation, 20 or more times it refers to Christ as the Lamb Revelation 5, 6 says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. Revelation 12, 11, They overcame by the blood of the lamb. In Genesis 2, 28, God himself will provide a lamb. In Revelation 5, 12, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Christ is our Passover lamb. And folks, just to make sure we got it, God sent his son into Jerusalem on the very day that the Jewish people for the last 1,500 years had been picking a lamb for the Passover. And guess which gate Jesus came in? The sheep gate. Now, there are several gates on the east side, the sheep gate and the golden gate, and there are some 
Bible scholars who believe that Jesus came in what we call the golden gate, but I believe he came in the sheep gate because it's sometimes called the lion's gate now. It was renamed, but it's on the very path that comes from Bethpage down the Mount of Olives. And Jesus came in the sheep gate. Now, what a God of detail. By the way, let me throw in something here. He came riding in on, on a donkey into the sheep gate. When he comes again, he's coming in like a general on a white horse through the golden gate. But just FYI there. But the fact is, he came in, and what a God of detail. The date and time had been fixed since the foundation of the world, and everything was planned down to the last detail. Every dot connected, and by coming into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day, Jesus was saying in a symbolic way, I'm going to be your Passover lamb. Pick me. I'm going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. Now, you see the arrangement that Jesus made. You see the arrival. Now, look at the acclaim for Jesus in verses 8 and 9. In Matthew, it says, And the very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from trees. And they began to cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. John tells us that a group from Jerusalem actually came out of Jerusalem and met them. So you've got them coming from all over to greet Jesus, and they're crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. They're, I can imagine the disciples are sitting there thinking, man, this is, Jesus is about to, to, to set up his earthly kingdom, and, but you find them dropping what they were doing and running out to meet Jesus shouting and singing and laughing and dancing and chanting. It's a day of unbridled joy as the common people meet Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem, crying out, Hosanna, save us. But where I want to spend a few moments with you is looking at the attitudes toward Jesus. Now, you've probably got all these details, and I probably haven't told you anything you didn't already know, but I want you to notice you'll be able to fit in one of these attitudes. I'm going to cover everybody today. You cannot say, well, I'm glad so-and-so was here. They really needed to hear this. You're going to find yourself in one of these attitudes. I call them different things. First of all, there was the confused. I don't know him. I'll let you look up the references there, but in Matthew 21, 10, somebody, people were going, who is this? Of course, some of the multitudes saying this is Jesus of Nazareth. Many people today really don't know who Jesus is. <laughs> some people just use his name in a derogatory way, an exclamation. Some people know about him. They don't really know who Jesus is. And folks, you cannot come to God unless you know who Jesus really is. He's not created. He's the second person of the Godhead, the Trinity, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, not three gods, one God. But Jesus, and some people know about Jesus, but they don't know him personally. 
There's a difference. There's a difference in head knowledge and commitment. About 16 inches there, 12 inches, depending on how tall you are. The fact is, a lot of people don't know. There's a lot of people who are confused about Jesus. There's also a group I call critical. I don't like him. Now, when you read in Matthew 21 and John 12, you're going to find, and I don't have time to read it but for sake of time today, but, but you're going to find them, the Pharisees. Boy, they didn't like him at all. You see, inside the city, the chief priests and scribes were monitoring the situation, and they were alarmed at how many people were going on the side of Jesus. After all, they were a group of religious leaders who were making sure the Jewish people followed the law of the Old Testament. They made sure everyone did what they were supposed to do, and by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were a very powerful group and were also very intrusive into people's lives. They got in your business. They were disgusted as they watched this man from Nazareth having all these people flock to him. They wanted a ritual Jesus. He didn't fit the mold. They thought the most important matter of religion was to be found not in how you believed or prayed, but in how you dressed and how you washed and how you ate. <laughs> their greatest fear was that their whole culture would be absorbed into the Roman culture, and so they emphasized all the little details that kept everybody distinctly Jewish. And then Jesus came preaching that the real way to God was through faith, and that led to high moral standards. He broke their rules. He broke the Sabbath. He ate with the unclean. He defied the laws of purification. They tried to derail him, his whole ministry. They asked him thought-bending questions to trap him in Matthew 22. They put him in moral situations and tested him in John 8. They tried to catch him in legal matters in Matthew 17. They were unable to derail this man who taught everything about God and performed miracle after miracle and was slowly drawing people's hearts back to God. They hated every minute of it. I occasionally meet people who hate God. Maybe you hate God and Jesus because a long time you prayed for something and nothing happened. Or maybe you hate him because you prayed for God's protection and something bad still happened. <laughs> there are people who hate God because they think his people are a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. Maybe you hate God because you, have, you realize you can't live the way you want to according to him. Maybe you hate Jesus because you feel trapped in guilt and you think God is always mad at you. If you're listening to me and you hear this on television or online, I want to mention two things. Not one single person in God's kingdom is perfect. You look at us, you're going to see imperfection and inconsistency. But we are forgiven and saved by the blood of Jesus. And also, your pride and your choice to live how you want, when you want, and the way you want, is going to come back to wreck your own soul. God always offers grace when you come to him. There's another attitude, the calloused. I don't believe him. In John 12, let me read John 12, 37 to you. 
But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Down in verse 44, it says, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. You cannot believe in God and not believe in Jesus. Didn't I just read that? Don't take my word for it. There are some who say, well, I believe in God. I just don't believe in Jesus. You don't believe in, you don't believe in the real God. There's another group. I call them the convenient. John chapter 12, verse 42, listen to this. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. You know, it seems today that there are a lot of evangelism or a lot of church outreach is pointing, Jesus, pointing people to Jesus' Facebook page and simply asking them to like him. Like Jesus, and you're going to get a lot of free stuff. But our gospel's too powerful to leave people on the fence about who Jesus is. You know, we're truly sharing the good news. Those around us will have two options. They're either going to hate him or they're going to fall in love with him. You can't ride the fence on this. Back in 1993, in an NCAA cross-country championship held in Riverside, California, there were 128 runners going 10,000 meters. 123 of them missed a turn. De, um, Mike Del Cabo stayed on the course. And he, he, he was trying to convince people, y'all are going the wrong way. And four people followed him. There were five of them out of the 128 that stayed on the course. When they, and, and by, by missing this turn, the other group cut a half mile off of the race. So when Del Cavo and his four friends got back in there, obviously they were in last place. What's amazing is that because so many of them missed the turn, the officials changed the rules of the race. And instead of disqualifying 123 of them, they let them count. So these five who did the right thing came in five out of the last six places. They, Del Cavo, was asked about it, and he didn't file a protest or anything, but he said, but everybody thought it was funny that I went the right direction. Folks, I want to tell you something. The world may miss the turn, but God's not going to change the rules to accommodate the crowd. When you follow it, there are people who just follow Jesus when it's convenient. Isn't it amazing? Now, now we've got, I thank God we have some godly people in 
leadership positions in our city and state and hopefully in our nation. But have you noticed how convenient Jesus is when you're running for office? Especially among conservatives. Now, I'm not, I'm not belittling those who are genuine because we have some. Some in our church. But there's always going to be those who just follow him when it's convenient. The last attitude we see is committed or consecrated. I know him. When Jesus entered the city, they shouted three different things. I've already mentioned to you Hosanna, which means save us or save now. And the crowds were asking Jesus to save them in a lot of different ways. I can imagine they were saying, free us from the Romans. But Jesus didn't come to save us from political party. He came to save us from satanic enslavement. He came to set us free from our sin. And there are people today who still need to cry out, save us. Save me. You can't come to Christ unless you ask him to save you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord means they understood clearly that Jesus was God's representative and all his teaching, his miracles, his parables, his daily life was an expression of God the Father. There were those who knew who he was. Blessed is the king of Israel meant that they understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He's the one they'd been looking for. He's the one they'd been reading about. They just expected him to come in a different way. So I guess the question for you this morning is, what is your attitude toward Jesus? How do you respond? Tim Keller said, we must realize that the only possible way to respond to Jesus is extremely to follow him with all your life. People hear about Jesus dying. They hear, they're going to hear about Palm Sunday. But even then, those attitudes that were so prevalent are still prevalent today. There are some say, I don't know who, I don't know who this Jesus is. Oh, I, I've heard about him. Maybe he was a great teacher, great prophet, great man. No, he is the manifestation of God himself. The son of the living God, he is God. He is God in the flesh. There's some say, I don't like him. Most of the time when people say they don't like God, they've either blamed him for something he didn't do or they don't like something the church did to them a long time ago. But then there are some who say, I just, I just, I just hate God. You're really mad because he didn't, he didn't answer to your call. There are some who say, you know, I'll follow him when it's convenient. There are some who are committed to him. And that's the only place you can be and he'll change your life. The only way that Jesus changes your life is when you commit your life to him. And you receive him 
as your Savior and Lord. Anything else doesn't change your life. Only when you come to him. You may have heard the story many times, but you've never come to him. You can do that even now. Would you bow your heads with me? There are some of you who've known about Christ and never stepped across the line. You never said, Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me on my sin. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose again. I commit my life to you. Here I am, Lord, please forgive me. Take my life now. I don't know, I, I give it all to you. I give you everything. Lord, I pray for those today who need to receive Christ. Maybe they're watching us online. Maybe they're seeing us on television. They may be sitting in this room. They could be watching a monitor in the hall. Please speak to their hearts, Lord, drawing them to you. We know that you draw people to you. I pray they'll see the truth and turn from their sin and come to you. Thank you, Lord, for a, a church, a place to gather, a people that gathers in your name. And I lift them up to you and pray that you would draw us closer to each other. And for those who don't have a church, Lord, bring them here. Pray for those who profess their faith in you. And for some reason, they've been afraid to be baptized. Please give them courage and understanding that it's not optional. It's the first sign that you've been born again. It's the first act of obedience. Pray for those that just need a word and touch from you today. You've encouraged them. Maybe there's some, Lord, who've been away for a while and they need to be back on track with you. So, Lord, today we ask that you speak to them and draw them to you. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.